0: Want to set the stage here, not only for the book of Haggai, but also the two that will follow because they are written in this time period as well, the book of uh, Zechariah as well as Malachi. And so this is setting the stage for these other minor books that we, uh, minor prophets that we will be looking at. So first of all, we have, we have been seeing that all the minor prophets have been looking forward to things that were future, and one of those was the fall of Jerusalem. The God was going to bring judgment upon his people and chasten them because they have been disobedient. They have they have been unfaithful to their God. They have gone after other gods and God has sent prophets to warn them and many they, they did not listen to. And so the day of judgment came. It was in the year 586, finally, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian kingdom. To Nebuchadnezzar. It was a, a dreadful, dreadful battle, and it was a horrible time in Jerusalem. And uh, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, all of the articles that were in the temple were carted off to Babylon, and uh, many were killed, and many were taken into exile. This began what is referred to as the time of the exile, it was the Babylonian captivity. That lasted for seventy years because they had failed to keep the Sabbath year. Every seven years, they were to they were to let the land lay fallow. They were not to uh, they were not to farm, but they did not do that, and so there were seventy years that were set for this time of captivity, and uh, so there were these seventy years. It was during this time that we have the books that are written, Daniel and Ezekiel. They were taken from Jerusalem, and they were taken into captivity. That's where Daniel takes place, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So there was a 70-year period, and then it was in the year 539 that the uh, Babylonians were overrun and taken by the Medes and the Persians by Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. And that happened in 539. So one generation of the Jews was in captivity during this time. And then there is the fall of Babylon to King Cyrus. One of the things that we see as we go through the minor prophets is this truth that Proverbs talks about. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. It's like channels of water, and He turns it whichever way He pleases. It's an amazing thing that our God is sovereign over kings and over kingdoms, and unbeknownst to those kings, God is using them to accomplish His own person, uh, His own purposes. When we think about history, it is His story. You know the, that history is not just random. God is carrying on his purposes, his redemptive purposes in history. And he uses even pagan kings to accomplish that. We've seen that already. In Isaiah 10, we saw that, the, that Assyria, the king of Assyria, is the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. God used Assyria to bring the northern kingdom under judgment in 722, and they were dispersed, and Samaria was destroyed. In Habakkuk, we saw in Habakkuk 1 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They are going to be the instrument that I will use to bring judgment on Judah in the southern kingdom, and that happened in 586. But now, on the other end of the spectrum, we see that God even uses pagan kings to do good to his people. And this is what we find with this man, Cyrus. He will be an instrument of God's mercy, though he he is not intending this. He will be an instrument of God's mercy to bring about the return and the restoration of a remnant that had been in exile in Babylon for these 70 years. Isaiah foretells this. He talks about this kingdom and this king Cyrus and he speaks about him 100 over 150 years before he was even on the throne. It's an amazing to think about. Listen to these words that were spoken concerning this man Cyrus and what he would do by the prophet Isaiah and if it were in our day this would be sometime around the Civil War. Something like that, this prophecy was made that would be fulfilled in our own day. So Isaiah writes, and he says this in Isaiah 44, speaking about the restoring of Judah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then these words in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations, and before whom... And and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. In other words, Cyrus, I'm I'm going to make you successful in your mission, in your victories, and you will succeed by the will of God. And then it says this for Jacob, for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. An amazing, amazing thing is given to us here. Long before Cyrus is ever born, he is named by Isaiah. And he is the one who will bring about this restoration and bringing the people of God back to their land. Turn, if you will, quickly to 2 Chronicles 36. Here it is wrapping up uh, the history of the kings and the fall of Israel, the fall of Judah. Um, and in wrapping this up, we are, we are given these verses uh, that we want to look at here Verse 22, or verse 20. Here it's speaking about them being taken into exile in Babylon. Verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king kingdom of Persia. All right, so Babylon is going to fall, and there's now this kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now notice verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And then we get into the book of Ezra, and Ezra just picks up the story and what happens as this remnant of people come back to the land and they begin to rebuild Judah. They begin to rebuild the cities, and they begin to rebuild the, the, the temple. And as I look at that, it's, it's an amazing thing. This is almost like a second exodus. God had raised up Moses to bring the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And now God has raised up another servant. He's a pagan king. And this man is going to bring about another exodus. And we read in Ezra there were over 10,000 people that initially came and went back to the land to begin to rebuild the temple. I think it's helpful for us today as we think of the minor prophets and the word of God, in the unsettling times in which we live, to see that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is carrying out his purposes when from this perspective, sometimes it's confusing to us. Our God is on the throne. We just sang that hymn, behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. This is the God to whom we belong, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalmist tells us, those who know the name of the Lord their God, they will put their hope in him. As we come to know more about who our God is, we come to put our hope in him. And so these things, uh, the the minor prophets, teach us about our God. So it was in 539 that Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. He makes a decree in the following year, this decree that these people are to be able to go back to their homeland. It was over 42,000, actually. And they go under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and they return back to Jerusalem, And probably among those, this remnant of people that return would be people like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. They have probably been born in Babylon in a foreign country. And now they have returned and they come back to their land. And this is a time that they are to rebuild. And so in the year 536, as they have been commissioned by the Lord and by Cyrus, they return back and they begin to work on the temple. And we read about this in Ezra chapter 3. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar where sacrifices are made. They begin to lay the foundation of the temple. And it's a joyous time. It's a time of rebuilding. And I think of in our history as a church here, those times that we had building projects, it was, it was an exciting time to see the, uh, the building going on. And this was an exciting time for them. They've returned back to their land. God has given favor to them, and they're beginning to rebuild the temple. It's a time of celebration, of joy, and of singing. However, very soon, things are going to change. Uh, many of the older saints are... Weeping, many that had lived before the fall of the temple, and they lived through the exile, now they've returned and they're weeping because they said this ain't nothing like Solomon's temple. They realized that that glory of, of that temple, this, this is not going to be like that. And they're kind of debbie downers. And they caused a discouragement among the workers. And not only that, there are the Samaritans who are causing trouble. They have adversaries as they're working on the temple, and they make trouble for them. And uh, so the work ceases. And uh, we read about this in, in Ezra 4. It says, they tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. And then we read this: Thus, the work of the house of God, on the on the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. So they had the foundation laid, but they stopped working. The trouble came, and, and they said, "We're we're stopping." So they stopped rebuilding the temple. So in the day of Haggai, now this work is going to be resumed and God is going to use men like Haggai and Zechariah to encourage, to exhort the people to do what they should have been doing all along. So 16 years later, after the work had ceased, now they're hearing from Haggai, you need to be doing what God has called you to do. And they do, and then the temple is going to be finished Uh, in 516. So it's in the year 520 that the events that we find in Haggai are given to us. He's a man that has come to call the people to action and to resume the work that God has called them to do. And so the temple is completed then in in the year 516. And we read about that as well in the book of Ezra. And God used, Ezra says, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir up the hearts of the people to do this work. So what is his ministry focus? His ministry is to call the people to action and to rebuild. We see this in chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So this is Haggai speaking on behalf of God. We need to resume the work. We need to build the temple for his glory, for his honor, that he will take pleasure in it. Because this was central to the worship of Israel, the temple and God's presence, the Shekinah glory that was there in the presence of his people. And so this was his ministry and what preoccupied his ministry among the people. Who was his audience? well we read in verse one that this is the second year of Darius, the king in the second year of Darius, who is now the king he became the king in six i think twenty two and this is the second year the year five twenty excuse me five twenty two and now this is the year five twenty and in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to here's one man that he's addressing Zerubbabel who is Zerubbabel well he's the son of Shetiel, who was the son of Jehoiachin who's who was one of the last kings of Judah before they fell he was a wicked king he was an evil king that was his grandfather now he was probably born um, in in uh, this this man Zerubbabel was probably born during the exile But he is in the line of David. He is a descendant of King David. He's a part of the royal line. So he's in charge, we might say, politically, civilly of the people. And then there's another man that is mentioned, and it is Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. He's from the line of the Levites. He is a priest. So we have one who is a political leader, one who is a religious leader, and he addresses these two men because they're going to have influence over the people. So part of his message is directed to them, but then his message is also directed to the remnant that are mentioned here in chapter 1, those that have come back. His message is to all of them. So these are the people to whom he addresses. So we see Haggai in his time. Secondly, we see Haggai in his message. His message is actually what we have here are four sermons in four months. This whole book is, uh, takes, peri- uh, takes place in a short period of time from August the 29th of 520 to December 18th of the same year, 520. So in a period of less than four months, Here's the prophet who's preaching to them, speaking to them, admonishing them. And there are four messages that are given. And we're going to look at the first one that is in chapter 1. The other three are in chapter 2, which we will look at next week. So what is his message, his first message? Well, we notice in verse 1, in a very interesting way, um, the Lord speaks to his people, and it says, The word of the Lord, verse 1, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It's an interesting statement, isn't there? It didn't come by the words of, uh, of the prophet or the lips or the tongue of the prophet, but it came by the hand of the prophet. He's like the mailman or UPS. They're just the delivery person. This message comes from God, and it comes through the hand of Haggai. He's bringing this message to the people, and this is emphasized over and again here that this is the Lord of Hosts that is speaking. Haggai says, "I'm just the spokesman. I'm just the mailman. I'm just bringing you the message. This message is from the Lord." Holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us, and so he is bringing this message, and his message is dealing with a problem. A problem that is among the people at this time. For 16 years, the temple has remained untouched. Weeds are growing up. And what have the people been saying? We see it in verse 2. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not come. And what we find, instead of an enthusiasm in rebuilding the temple, instead of facing up even to the adversaries and doing what God has called them to do. We find apathy. We see neglect, misplaced priorities. And so Haggai's message comes to them. And in verse 5, he says, I want you to consider your ways. I want you to think about your ways. I, I want you to look at life right now in judah in jerusalem and i want you to consider your ways and what is going on what you are experiencing right now you're not experiencing fellowship with your god and satisfaction in him and you're not knowing the blessings that he has promised to an obedient people in fact you're finding the opposite and what we're going to find is that god has been chastening them he's been frustrating their life, and their plans during this time. And we see this, uh, look at verse 6. You have sown much, and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Some of you may feel like that in our day as you think about inflation and gas prices at $5 a gallon and meat and grocery prices going up and empty shelves at the store. Well, this was far worse in that day. And and the Lord is saying to them, consider your ways. There's, There's a lesson in this for you. We see also down in verse 11, and I... This is the Lord speaking. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all your labors. You remember when God made a covenant with them, he told them in Deuteronomy 8, you obey me, I will bless you. I'll bless your crops. I'll bless your land. I'll bless your homes, your kneading bowls. I'll, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I'll bring curses upon you. It's going to be difficult. And this is a sign again to these people that, you know, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, this is what was happening to them, the curses of God. And even now, again, this remnant has returned and their hearts are already turning away from the Lord. And the Lord is getting their attention. The Lord has got a message in what's going on in the land around them. And, you know, sometimes when we think about God's ways, he, he can frustrate our ways, can't he? And as I look at these verses, I think that we see here God's grace of providential frustration. God's grace of providential frustration. He can so work in his providential dealings with his people in a gracious way to get their attention and to do them good. And to discipline them, chasten them, to bring them back to the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think Hebrews 12 talks about that, that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And I think this is what we see here, that God in his providence has brought these things to pass to get their attention. Consider your ways, people. Look what's going on in the land around you. You're just like putting your, all this work and energy is not producing much. And, and there's this frustration factor. Rather than seeking satisfaction in their God, they have been seeking satisfaction in other things. Rather than doing the will of God, they were doing other things. They were not doing what God had called them to do. What were they doing? They were building their own houses. And he mentions this. They are houses that are paneled. In other words, these are more luxurious houses. They've given their attention to their own things rather than doing what they knew was to be the will of God at this point. So rather than rebuilding the house of the Lord, they're they're consumed with their own things, with their own houses, with their own life, seeking their satisfaction in those things rather than seeking to please God and do what he has called them to do. But what we find here is that they have an ear to hear and they obey. We see their obedience. There's a positive response to the word of God. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel the son of Shetiel and Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. This is what the prophet likes to see. This is what a preacher likes to see elders, to see people responsive to the word of God. I've said often, you know, sometimes in ministry, you're not sure you're accomplishing anything. You know, is there anything being accomplished for eternal good? And I like to mow my grass. Uh, I love to get on my John Deere mower and mow my grass because when I mow my grass, I can see what I got done. It's evident. Sometimes in ministry, you're not sure, you know. But thank God, in this situation, they heard the word of God. There was an immediate response from the people of God to hear and to fear God, what he has called them to do. And so they respond. And this is a a dramatic change, a dramatic response on the heart of these people. And notice in verse 12, it connects the voice of the Lord their God And the words of Haggai, he was speaking for God. These things go together. He was a messenger that was sent by God. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, said, I thank God that when you received the word from us, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as what it truly is, the word of God, as an apostle sent by Christ. You've received our words, not as men's words, But what they really are, this is the word of God. And here they have heard through Haggai the voice of God. This is our God who is speaking to us. And their hearts are humbled and they're repentant. And it says they feared God. There was this reverential awe And respect for this one who is being presented to them by this prophet. And they feared him. They feared him. They became what we often call God-fearing people. God has spoken. We have heard. And we need to respond in appropriate ways. And so here is this good result. And so we read in verses 14 and 15 that the remnant of the people, they came together and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. So here we are in the year 520. They begin to labor again to rebuild the house where God will come and dwell with his people, make himself known in a special way that he did when in in the midst of, of his people in the temple and that He would take pleasure in this. As we close this morning, I hope we can see that this is a relevant message for us today. I think God would say to us, it's a timeless message, consider your ways. If you're a follower of Christ, what has your heart today? Where are your affections today? Now, we've not been called to build a building, but these things are pointing to something even greater. It's pointing to another building, in a a sense, another temple. It is God dwelling with his people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was made flesh, and what? What? dwelled among us. It tabernacled among us. Here is God where he meets with his people today. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the temple. Jesus said that, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And he was not speaking about a building. He was speaking about himself. I am the temple. I am the place where sinners and God meet. It is in Christ. It is in Jesus Christ. And as we are united to Christ, we are incorporated into him and we are his body. We are his temple. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Do you not know that you, plural, that you, Corinthians, you, church, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you? God dwells with his people. 1 Peter 2 tells us, That is, we have come to Christ who is a living stone. He says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's the question for us today. We're not called to build a structure made of stone and wood. But we are called to be a part of the building up of the body of Christ. This is to have our affection, our time, and our energies, the body of Jesus Christ. And it's very possible we need to hear these words today. Consider your ways. Are you one who is committed to the body of Christ? Are you one who's committed to building up the body of Christ, not just not just coming in and out, but to be used of God, to build up his body, to be using gifts that God has given to me to encourage others, to help them to grow in grace. And as we become the bodies called us to be, just as in the Old, Old Testament, that temple, the glory of God was revealed there, the Shekinah glory. So in this temple, in his church, we are to diffuse the glory of God. Of God in our relationships with one another. This is the place that God's glory should be seen among God's people and be a light in the world. Rather than a people fighting and bickering, and I'm not saying you're doing that, I am thank God you're not, but rather than being people that are living in disharmony with one another, we are living out Christ in our relationships with one another. We're seeking to bring glory to him so that his glory is seen and he is honored. But sometimes we're like Israel of old. We are, are, we're preoccupied with our own houses, our own things. And, and we say like Israel, well, we know that we're to rebuild, but the time is not right now. I've got other things that are more important now. And it really becomes misplaced priorities. And so I think this book is timeless for us. Does God have our heart, our affections for the one thing that Christ said he is going to build and that is his church. May God be at work in us to make us to be people, to love what God loves, what Christ loves. That we will give our heart, soul and mind, our money, our time, energies to make the church to be what God has called it to be. May God be at work in us to do that. Maybe you're here today without Christ. Again, we point you to this one. You know, all the things of this world can never satisfy the heart. God has placed eternity in the heart of man. And nice houses and nice things, nice possessions, those things can never ultimately satisfy. Jesus spoke of a man, a farmer, who built bigger barns to house his crops. He got richer and richer. But then Jesus said he was a fool. Thou fool, because tonight your soul is required of you. And then to whom will these things belong? They're going to belong to someone else. And you have been rich, not toward God but the things of this world that are passing away. And the call of the gospel is Jesus Christ has come into this world that we might have life and have it more abundantly. This life is found in Christ. The call of the go- gospel is to turn from what we have been seeking our own riches and enjoyment in the things of this world that can never ultimately satisfy us. Find our joy our hope, our contentment, and the God who has created us and redeems sinners through Jesus Christ. May you flee to him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you today that our God is on his throne, lifted up, exalted above all the earth. And if we be in Christ, we are in him and we belong to you. You are the one who directs the flow of history. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to come again. He's going to make all things new. He will rule and reign forever. And we're thankful to be a part of this redemptive narrative by your grace. And if there is anyone here that is yet not a follower of Christ, may this day, may they flee to him. May they flee to the Savior of sinners and find life in him. And Lord, for us, may we consider our ways if we be in Christ. Lord, have we, do we have misplaced priorities? Have we pursued things that really are just for our own pleasure and not really have a kingdom perspective? May we hear the words of Jesus who said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Be at work in us to that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you again, if you will. We're